Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 10. John chapter 10, and I'll read verses 30 through the end of the chapter. John chapter 10 and verse 30. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. The Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law? I said, You are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, You are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Therefore they were, seize, they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing, and he was staying there. And many came to him and were saying, While John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. In our recent sermons, we've been looking at this 10th chapter of John's Gospel. Surely it is a most wonderful and important chapter in the scriptures, and almost the entire chapter contains the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. In this chapter, Jesus makes two of his well-known I Am statements in which he identifies himself as the Messiah and the great work that he came to do. His first I Am statement is found in the beginning of verse 9, where he said, I am the door. I am the way of entrance, he meant, into the kingdom of God. I am the only way of access to the Father in heaven. I am the mediator between God and man. His second I am statement is found in the beginning of verse 11, where he said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And he goes on in this chapter to say that I know my sheep and they know me. And my sheep, they hear my voice. They follow me. I give eternal life to them. I guide them into the ways of abundant life, I will protect them from all dangers. No one can snatch them out of my hand. I am the good shepherd. And when the scribes and the Pharisees heard what Jesus was saying of himself, especially his words in the beginning of verse 29, where he called God my Father, and then in in verse 30, I and the Father are one, We are two persons in the one God, in the one divine essence. The Pharisees accused him of blasphemy because they thought he was only a man who was making himself out to be God. And in verse 31, they picked up stones again to stone him. We see their charge of blasphemy against Jesus at the end of verse 33, where they say, 
we are charging you for blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. And then in verses 34 through 36, which we saw last Lord's Day, Jesus makes his defense against their charge of blasphemy. And his defense is based upon Psalm 82 and verse 6. In verse 34, Jesus answered them, Had it not been, has it not been written in your law? And then he quotes from Psalm 82 and verse 6, I said, you are God's. And in that psalm, God placed the honor of his own name, Elohim, upon the rulers of ancient Israel because he had appointed them to be the judges and to execute justice in the land of Israel. They were his representatives to carry out his word, and so he called them God's. And then in verses 35 and 36, Jesus based his defense upon that single word, God's, and he reasoned from the lesser to the greater. In the beginning of verse 35, he said, If he, that is God, called them gods, to whom the word of God came in that psalm, and the scripture, the scripture from that psalm, or any other scripture, it cannot be broken. And if it was not blasphemy to, for God to place the honor of his name upon men who were mere rulers on earth, then how can it be blasphemy? For one who is vastly superior and who has an infinitely greater commission from the Father, how can it be blasphemy for him to use that same name and say, I am the Son of God? Verse 36, how do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world? How do you say of him, you are blaspheming because I took God's name to myself and said, I am God Jesus vindicates himself from the charge of blasphemy. Not by denying that he was making himself out to be God, but by affirming it. Because he actually is the eternal God whom the Father has sanctified and sent in to the world. As we continue our study this morning here in verses 36 down through the end of this chapter, the first thing we want to see is that Jesus further explains his relationship with his Father in heaven. Back in verse 29, he called God his own Father. He said, My Father. Then in verse 30, he said, I and the Father are one. Now in verse 36, he further explains his relationship with the Father. And he says there in verse 36 that he is the one whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world. Two things he says of his relationship with the Father. The first, the Father sanctified him. To sanctify means to consecrate or to set apart to a particular work or mission. And this is what God the Father did with his beloved Son. It took place in heaven in eternity before the foundation of the world in the covenant between the Father and the Son, the Father determining there should be salvation for men and women, the Father sanctified the Son, the Father consecrated Him and set Him apart, dedicated Him as the one who would come into the world 
and accomplish salvation. When the Father sanctified the Son, it included the entire work of salvation for lost men and women. The incarnation in which the Son of God would come down from heaven and take humanity to himself. All the works that he would do upon the earth, his death upon the cross in an atonement to take away sin, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension back into heaven, his intercession at the right hand of God, his second coming in judgment at the end of the world, the entire work of salvation, the Father sanctified, set apart, and commissioned his beloved Son for the entire work. We can think of the Old Testament prophecies concerning our Lord Jesus Christ. So many prophecies concerning his coming into the world. I mention only a few. Psalm 2 and verse 6, the father said, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Ask of me, he said, and I will surely give the nations as thine inheritance. He was the servant whom the Lord promised in Isaiah. Isaiah 42 and verse 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He was the son of David, and he was the righteous branch promised by Jeremiah and Ezekiel. He was the fulfillment of all the types and shadows of the Old Testament ceremonial law. He was the great prophet, the priest, the king of his people. So many prophecies of the Old Testament scriptures. The question is, how could there be so many prophecies given for so many centuries throughout that entire Old Testament period? The answer is found here in that the Father had sanctified his beloved Son from eternity for that great work of salvation. And then through the centuries, he sent the Spirit to speak of him and prophesy of all that he would do. The Father sanctified the Son. The second thing the Father did was he sent the Son into the world. Verse 36, the Father sanctified and sent him into the world. This took place in time, his coming into the world in the incarnation. The Father sent him into the world, meaning that he was not in the world, but from outside the world. And he was in heaven with the Father, and the time came for him to be sent into the world for his incarnation and all his work of salvation. This is not something new in John's gospel. John has already spoken of this very same thing back in chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God from eternity. But then in time he was sent into the world, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But why did the Father need to sanctify his Son his beloved son, and send him into the world? The answer is because the human condition in sin was so very desperate. There was no one, there was no one in the world who could ever save themselves 
The whole human race was corrupt in the sight of God. Under guilt and the power of sin, there was no one in the world who could ever rescue himself or anyone else from sin and left to ourselves, we would all perish. The world was lost in sin. And if there was to be any salvation, then someone had to come into the world. Someone had to descend from heaven down into this lost world to bring that salvation. And the work of salvation was so vast and so infinite that no angel, no seraphim could ever accomplish this great work of salvation. Only a divine person could accomplish it. And so God the Father sanctified his beloved Son for the glorious work. And then in time, he sent him down from heaven into the world to do all the work of salvation. Jesus often spoke of his being sent into the world. By the Father, John 3 and verse 17, he said, God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. John 5 and verse 37, the Father who sent me, he has borne witness of me. And John 6 and verse 38, for I have come down from heaven, he said, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So salvation could not come from below. It had to come from above. It would not arise from men or anything that men could do. It had to begin with the Father in heaven in eternity, sanctifying his beloved Son and sending him into the world. The apostles spoke of this as well. Paul said in Galatians 4 and verse 4, he said, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. And John wrote in 1 John 4 and verse 10, he said, In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. He loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is part of Jesus' argument here against the charge of blasphemy. Because back in verse 34, if God could call mere men on earth who were his appointed rulers, if he could call them gods, then, and that was not blasphemy, then how can you accuse the one whom the Father has sent, sanctified from eternity, to this far more glorious work of salvation and sent him into the world to accomplish it? How can you accuse him of blasphemy? Because I used the same title to myself and said, I am the Son of God. Now, Jesus did not explicitly say in the previous verses, as far as John records, he did not explicitly say, I am the Son of God. He clearly implied it in verse 29 when he called God my Father. And if God is his Father, then he must be the Son of God 
of God, a divine title by which he was declaring himself to be equal with God. And when he said at the end of verse 36, I said I am God, it seems that Psalm 82 and verse 6 was still in his mind. Back at the end of verse 34, Jesus quoted the first part of Psalm 82 and verse 6, I said, you are God's. But there is a second part to that verse, and it might be helpful for us to just turn back there for a moment, Psalm 82 and verse 6. We're just going to glance at it, keep your finger there in John chapter 10, but back in Psalm 82 and verse 6. We see the first half of verse 6, which Jesus quotes, I said you are God's. But then there is the second half of the verse where he said, and all of you are sons of the Most High, all of you rulers of Israel. You are God's and you are also, by your appointment as rulers and judges, you are sons of the Most High. And so now we'll turn back to John chapter 10. And back here in John chapter 10 at the end of verse 36, it seems that Jesus still had that psalm in mind and he continues to apply it to the Pharisees. And at the end of verse 36, he makes a distinction between them and himself. Just like those rulers in ancient Israel, they were all sons of the Most High by God's appointment as rulers. So you Pharisees, in that same sense, you are sons, you are all sons of the Most High by God's appointment. But I am the unique and the only Son of God by divine nature from eternity. You are sons, plural, just like they were sons of the Most High, but I am the singular, the only, unique, eternal Son of God. And there is no one like me. And I stand above all the others in my divine nature. I am the Son of God from eternity, whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world. So Jesus, in verse 36, he further explains his relationship with his heavenly Father. And the second thing we want to see is that Jesus makes one last appeal to believe in him in verse 37 and 38. We read verse 37, he says, If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. He speaks here of the works of the Father. He means not just the works that the Father has given me to do, but he means the works of the Father, the works that only the Father could do. The works which are so great and so full of wonder and love and power that only the Father could do them. No one else could ever do them. They are the works of the Father. No one else could ever do them except one who is equal with the Father. There are works that only the Father could do. And Jesus himself, he has done those works. And so that is further proof of his divine nature. If I do not do the works that only 
my father and I can do from the common power that belongs to us. If I do not do the works of my father, then do not believe me, he says. You have reason not to believe. But the beginning of verse 38, but, I, but if I do them, which I do do, and I have done them before your eyes, and though you do not believe me, he says, do you do not believe my words, then believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Jesus means here, believe my works, that you may come to believe in me and you may know the union I have with the Father, that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. The works of the words of Jesus are always sufficient to bring men to faith. But when he adds works to those words to confirm them, then unbelief becomes an even greater sin than it was before. And what Jesus is doing here in these verses is he is making one final plea to the Pharisees to believe in him because of his mighty works, which prove his union with the Father. The Father is in him and he is in the Father. The Jews had rejected him now they reject him again in verse 39. Therefore, they, they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. Back in verse 31, they desired to stone him. And now it seems they've changed their strategy, perhaps to seize him and take him someplace outside the temple. Or perhaps they thought that his claim to deity was so clear they could seize him now and bring him before the Sanhedrin for his trial. But in some way, we are not told Jesus eluded their grasp and escaped from them. But what we see here in these verses, verses 37 and verse 38, is a most remarkable thing because it shows to us the deep compassion of Jesus and his most intense desire for the salvation of lost men and women. They had just picked up stones to stone him to death in verse 31. Now they were about to seize him and filled with anger and bitter hatred against him, all they desired was his death. And yet Jesus makes this one last plea to them to come to him and believe in him. After all that they have heard and seen of his mighty works, they still did not believe. And in this most hardened state of heart, yet they were still not beyond the hope of salvation. And Jesus offers them once more eternal life if they would only turn from their unbelief and believe in him. He speaks no harsh words against them, no words of resentment or judgment, even their most bitter enemies, the scribes and the Pharisees who were desiring his death. They desired his death but he desired their eternal life and he freely offers it to them. 
God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that men should be saved through him. And so Jesus makes this one final plea to the Pharisees to believe in him and to come and know his salvation. Now Jesus had been in Jerusalem for some time from the Feast of Tabernacles, which took place back in John chapter 7. And he remained now through John chapter 10 in the city of Jerusalem through this Feast of the Dedication. And as we come now to the closing verses of this chapter, our last point is that Jesus withdrew from the city of Jerusalem. We read in verse 40 through 42. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing. And he was staying there. And many came to him and were saying, while John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Verse 40 marked the end of Jesus' public ministry in Jerusalem. John tells us here that Jesus went away beyond the Jordan to the other side of the Jordan River. He withdrew from Jerusalem. He would speak on other occasions, but it would always be to smaller and more private gatherings of his disciples. This was the close of his public ministry in Jerusalem. And so many people in that great city the holy city of God, especially the Jewish leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, they had heard so much from him, and yet they rejected him as the Messiah. John told us back in verse 22 of just this chapter that it was winter in Jerusalem. It was winter in Jerusalem. In a spiritual sense, the coldness and the darkness of winter was now descending upon that great city of God. The time of the Messiah's visitation in the person of Jesus Christ, that time had come and now it was gone. The summer of the light and the warmth of his appearing was over. The coldness and the darkness of the winter was descending and they had rejected their Savior The next time Jesus would enter Jerusalem, it would be for his crucifixion. And he would weep over that city, over the hardness of their hearts, and he would cry out, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together. The way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. John tells us he went away beyond the Jordan to the other side of the Jordan, the eastern side of the Jordan River. He says, to the place where John was first baptizing, and he, Jesus, was staying there. He went to the place where John first baptized back in John chapter 1. It was the place where Jesus himself was baptized by John. And it was the place where Jesus himself had begun 
his public ministry back three and a half years ago. The place where he had begun his public ministry. Jesus now retreats back to that same, that very same place now, now that his public ministry in Jerusalem has come to an end. And he would remain there for four months until the time of his crucifixion. It must have been a very solemn retreat for Jesus. A time in which he would have contemplated what was before him and prepared himself for his return back into Jerusalem, first to raise Lazarus from the dead, and then his last entrance into the city for his violent and agonizing death. He knew the cross before him was where he would suffer for human sin. It was the hour that had been planned from eternity. It was the hour for which the Father had sanctified him and sent him into the world. It was the hour the prophets had all spoken of. It was the hour that was now coming upon him when he would return for the crucifixion. And thoughts of that hour must have filled his mind as he remained now beyond the Jordan River in this rural area on the eastern side of that river, a mountainous area, and he remained there for four months. We learn from Jesus' example here that it is not always wrong to retreat from conflicts. Jesus had done his work in Jerusalem. He had spoken his words to the Jews, but they had rejected him. And he did not need to press the conflict any further. He did not need to remain there and continue in it with them. And we do not need to win every battle. And as it was with Jesus, there are times when it is the path of wisdom for us to retreat and withdraw. But it was not a time of inactivity, as we see in verse 41, that many came to him. They came to him from Jerusalem because he was not far from Jerusalem, and many must have come to him from the surrounding towns and villages of that region where he was. When Jesus, when Christ is banished from one place, he will not lack another place to have his gospel preached. He can save sinners in any place. He withdraws from the great city of Jerusalem where he had so little fruit and now he comes to this rural region beyond the Jordan and here now he bears much fruit. Verse 41 says, And many came to him and they were saying, While John performed no sign, no miracle, Yet everything John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. They came to Jesus because they remembered the preaching of John the Baptist. John had preached back in the beginning of Jesus' ministry three and a half years before in the earlier chapters of John's gospel. 
But John the Baptist was now dead. And he had been dead for some years, having been beheaded, beheaded by Herod. But John and his preaching were not forgotten. He did no miracles. But his words about Jesus were still remembered by these people. And they said at the end of verse 41, everything, everything that John said about this man was true. And because of John's words, many came out to him and many came to believe in him. It was by the remembrance of John the Baptist's words that they came to Jesus. A preacher may be dead But the word of God is always living. And even after years, the power of the Holy Spirit can take that word and make it live in the hearts of those who heard and bring them to faith in the Lord Jesus. We ought never to lose heart in our witness of Christ Though we see no fruit initially, perhaps years later, even after we are gone, our words will be remembered, and those who heard will say, everything that he said about that man Jesus is true, and they will believe in him. Parents should be most diligent in teaching their children from the days of their youth upward, the scriptures and the word of God. Parents should be most diligent day after day in teaching the word to their children. Though they may not believe at first, yet the words that were taught to them when they are young can still have power by the Holy Spirit and bring them to faith in Jesus years later. There's the story of a man who grew up in England in the 1600s. As a young boy, he attended a church where a Puritan minister preached the gospel. He did not believe in the gospel when he was a young man. He later immigrated over to the colonies of America and he lived his almost his entire life as an unbeliever. And then one day, one day as an old man, 94 years old, he was walking in a field by himself alone. And suddenly he remembered the words of that preacher back in England. And after nearly 80 years, the Lord took those words and gave them life in that man's soul. And he repented and he believed in the Lord Jesus for his salvation. The word of God is living and abiding word of God. Always active, living, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And piercing as far as the division of the soul and the spirit of the joints and the marrow. And able to reveal the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. 
These people remembered the words of John the Baptist years later. Herod could put John in prison, but he could not imprison the word of God. Kings can take God's servants and put them to death and have them beheaded, bring them to an end. They cannot bring an end to the word of God. Many were saying, everything John said about this man was true. That's the work of every minister, that everything he says about Jesus must be true. And no higher commendation could there ever be upon any minister or pastor than for others to say everything that man said of Jesus was true. We learn another lesson in this passage from the words of these people, and it is that these people wanted a word-based faith. They said to one another in verse 31, 41, they said, while John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. John the Baptist, he performed no sign, no miracle. But these people realized that miracles were not what they really needed. John had what they really needed. What was most necessary of true and lasting value to their souls, John had the word of God that they needed for their salvation. That's what they were looking for, the truth, the truth concerning Jesus and what he came to do for salvation. John performed no sign, and yet he had that word of God, and everything he said of him was true. Miracles can create sensation, and signs can create much excitement, but the word of God is what brings men to faith and salvation. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Peter said to Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. To whom shall we go? Some people want miracles and excitement, but they do not care for the word. These people did not care about miracles and excitement. They wanted the words of eternal life. And they remembered what John said. And we should look just for a moment at some of John's words. We'll turn back to John chapter 1. And we'll just look at a few words of John the Baptist that they must have remembered. There on the other side of the Jordan, John chapter 1. The Pharisees have come out to ask questions of John, who he is. And John says in verse 26, he said, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal 
I am not worthy to untie. John tells them that the coming Christ, he is so pure, so holy, and so far above all others that even John himself is not worthy to even untie his sandal. Then John makes his great announcement in verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This was the great work of Jesus. He has come. He is the only Lamb of God. He is the Lamb sent from heaven, the Lamb that has come from God. And his great work is to take away the sins of the world. All the lambs of the ceremonial law come to their fulfillment in him. And John knew the end of Jesus' ministry from the beginning. He is the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. Verse 30, this is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who has a great, a higher rank than I, and he existed before me. Then down in verse 33 and 34, John says, I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit, and I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. John says, the Father who sent me to baptize in water, he told me that the one upon whom you see the Holy Spirit descending and remaining upon him in his baptism he is the one who will baptize his people in the Holy Spirit. And John knew from the beginning that he is the Son of God. We can turn over to John chapter 3. In John chapter 3. Some of the scribes came out to John wondering why Jesus was now baptizing more than he was baptizing. John answered them in verse 30. John 3 and verse 30, he said of Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard, of that he bears witness. And no man receives his witness. He who has received his spirit has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God and gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hands. So John here speaks of Jesus, the one who has come down from heaven. And what he has seen in heaven with the father he has now come to bear witness to us, and his witness is true. The Father sent him into the world full of the Holy Spirit without measure, and the word of God came from him. The Father loves the Son and has given all things, all glory, majesty, power, into the hands of the Son. He is above all others, and he is more excellent than any of the sons of men. And then John said this in verse 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God 
abides on him. John the Baptist made this great distinction, the only real distinction among men, those who believe and those who do not obey, they do not believe the Son of God. Jesus is the only way to eternal life. And by faith in him, everyone may have eternal life. He who believes, whoever he is, he who believes in the Son, he has presently now eternal life. But he who does not believe, he who does not obey the Son, he shall not see and he shall not enter into that eternal life, but the wrath of God, the mighty anger of God, remains and abides upon him now and into eternity. So those people beyond the Jordan River in John chapter 10, they remembered what John said about Jesus. And everything he said about Jesus, they said, was true. And they must have remembered these words of Jesus of John the Baptist, that he is the Lamb of God, the only Lamb of God who can take away the sins of men. And whoever believes in him has eternal life. And they must have said to themselves, we have not yet come to believe in him. And the wrath of God still abides upon us. We must escape. We must find a way of deliverance from this wrath of God that John the Baptist spoke of. We must believe in him of whom everything he said was true. And they came to believe in Jesus and his salvation. And they came to eternal life. We can imagine Jesus beyond the Jordan River with them, telling them that he was the fulfillment of all that the prophets had spoken. He was the one whom Isaiah spoke of in Isaiah 53, that he will be cut off out of the land of the living as his mind began to be more focused on his coming crucifixion the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself a guilt offering. And as a result of the anguish of his soul, he shall see it and be satisfied. My servant will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. And Jesus must have gone over these scriptures and preached to them himself. And they would have heard from the lips of Jesus that he is the son of man who did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And he will shed the blood of the covenant by which many will be forgiven of their sins. He is the good shepherd who will lay down his life for the sheep. John was the last of the Old Testament prophets. And as the last of the Old Testament prophets, though he did preach the gospel and a repentance for the forgiveness of sin, yet his ministry was more centered on the law because the law came by Moses. 
But now grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And Jesus now preaches himself as the fulfillment of all that the law said. And how sweet it must have been for them to hear the words of Jesus. We remember all that John said. All that he said is true. And now we hear the words of Jesus. And we come to him for forgiveness of our sins. Back in John chapter 10. In John chapter 10, John tells us in verse 42, many believed in him. They did not believe in John the Baptist. They believed in Jesus because of what John said. And that was the purpose of John's preaching. Jesus is near to all of us today. He is near to us in his word. And just as he offered salvation to the Pharisees in Jerusalem and to the people beyond the Jordan, he offers salvation to all who will come to him and believe in him as the Savior. May you believe in Jesus today like these did. And may you come to find his eternal life by faith in him. Let's pray together. Father and gracious God in heaven, O Lord, have mercy upon us. Bless your word, the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, the words of truth, the words that give eternal life the means of bringing us to faith, repentance, and eternal life. O Lord, have mercy upon each one of us. May the word have a living power in us to give us repentance, to give us faith, and to lead us to follow him as the Savior. Have mercy upon each one of us, we pray, and bless the gospel to us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.